And thanks be to God for his word. Before I even begin today's message, Pastor Neil, thank you once again, and Jackie, for your faithful service to us. I learned from your model of prayer and faithfulness. We are so grateful for you, and we cannot wait to celebrate all God has done through you this afternoon. One more, um, thank you for many of you who prayed for me during this last couple of weeks in my sickness with COVID-19. I am so grateful for your care, prayers, emails, text messages, cards that you have sent to me. I've never received that many cards for the last couple of months. I didn't know how to write back, so this is my way of saying thank you. Uh, oh. <laughs> thank you. And I cannot tell you who the best cook is in Chelton. Many of you delivered a meal, but I couldn't taste much. So, But I can tell you, I ate so much that, yes, I contracted COVID-19, but I felt like I've gotten COVID-15 <laughs> as a result. Thank you so much. I am grateful. Uh, let, me, let me let you know where we are going. For the unforeseen circumstances, we took a pause for the book of Jonah for the past couple of weeks. And then today, we are coming back to Book of Jonah. So today, I'll walk us through. We will walk through the remaining of chapter 4. And the next Sunday will be the conclusion, the grand shebang, the grand finale of all the great things that God has done as we conclude our series in the Book of Jonah. So this next two Sundays, we will wrap our series in this book. I hope it has been edifying to you. As I was preparing the message, there were so many times I just wanted to go hide in the corner because I saw ugliness of my own heart, and it was a little too convicting for me to keep going as it is. Today's message was no exception for that. And yet, I want to give you a little cliff notes of where we have been so that I assume many of you know the contents of the book of Jonah by now. But let me give you a little cliff notes so that you know where we have been and where we are going. God calls this Jewish prophet Jonah to preach against Nineveh for their wickedness, Iraq, the terrorist country. But rather than Jonah going to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, he decides to run to Spain, Tarshish. On his way, God sends a storm. He gets cast down into the ocean. But by God's grace, he still provides this fish to swallow Jonah. In the belly of the fish, in the bottom of the ocean, Jonah repents. And God spits out, allows fish to spit out Jonah. This time, in obedience, Jonah goes to Nineveh. But even when we went to Nineveh, his preaching was at best reluctant preaching. But nonetheless, God's warning, God's words were proclaimed to the people of Nineveh, and miracles happened. They repent. To Jonah, he did not like it at all. He got so angry that Ninevites repented as a result of their repentance and as a result of God being the gracious God. God extends his forgiveness to Ninevite. And Jonah is not happy about that. So three Sundays ago, before he moved into virtual, Pastor Bill preached the message to us, the first half of chapter 4. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. The wrong Hebrew word is also evil. 
to Jonah, God's forgiveness to Nineveh seemed evil and wrong in his eyes. And Jonah tells God, huh, God, I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you would forgive them. I don't like it. Just kill me now. I'd rather die. And then God comes to Jonah. Jonah, is that right for you to be angry? That's where we ended last time. And that's where we are diving into today. I want this one singular question to drive entire sermon today, church. How's your heart? Yeah, let that sit in you a little bit. How's your heart? That's a million-dollar question. What are you just not willing to let go? Let my will be done, not your will. What are you desperately holding on? What are you so obsessed about that you are not just willing to budge into the will of the Lord? How is your heart today? What is it filled up with? Today's text will show us Jonah's stubborn will, his, his desperate obsession, and his carnal flesh that is wrapped in his self-righteousness. I'll sprinkle the points throughout, but may the Lord speak to our hearts today as we dive in. Look, verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, think with me, Chelton. Why? Why in the world Jonah would build a shelter and sit in its shade and wait, wait and wait to see what would happen in the city? Jonah by now knew that God extended his forgiveness to Ninevites. Therefore, there's no longer impending fireworks. There's no longer judgment coming. But Jonah, you don't make a shelter if you are going to be there only for five minutes. But he builds himself a shelter and waits and waits and trying to see what would happen to the city. Doesn't Jonah know by now that God extended forgiveness to them? Bible scholars and commentators speculate Jonah's motive. First, people, first group thinks that, okay, as miraculous as jo Jonah's, Nineveh's repentance was, it was rather very sudden. I mean, overnight, they just repent. So Jonah thinks, yeah, they repented so quickly. Therefore, they'll also revert to their old days, old sinful ways right away. Therefore, God still has to send judgment. I'm going to wait and see what happens until then so that God still send judgment to this, these people I don't like. Another way, people speculate Jonah's motive of just being out there waiting to see what would happen in the city is that Jonah is thinking, God, I clearly let you know that you are wrong. I told you that you are wrong and I'm right. You should not have sent them forgiveness. What they deserve is destruction. You know how livid I was, how angry I was. So let me see what you got now. You clearly knew where I stand on this. You heard my protest. God, now it's your turn to repent, your turn to relent, and send, once again send judgment to them. Either way, we don't know exactly Jonah's motive. Either way, what is clear is that Jonah still, after from all the way from the beginning of chapter 1, when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah didn't want to go because Jonah didn't want Ninevites to be repentant. Even now, all the way end to chapter 4, Jonah still wants Nineveh to be destroyed. His heart has not been changed a single bit. He's folding his arm in a 
outside of the city. God, when are you going to destroy the city? I'm still here. You clearly heard my protest. What are you doing, God, right now? Send judgment. Chelton, let me ask you, what are you desperately fighting against the will of God this morning? What are you rebelling against him today? God has clearly expressed his heart for forgiveness and grace, and Jonah is just not willing to budge. Perhaps you know exactly when I say, what are you rebelling against the will of God today? There's something already convicting in your heart that you have lived a rebellious and licentious life before God. How's your heart? But also for some of you, well, I don't know. I mean, what am I? I don't know. How do I know that I am not right with God? Can you help me? Well, I am glad that you asked on that. In order to discern your heart, how's your heart? In order to discern that, let me give you some guideline. And I borrow this point from Andy Stanley in his book, Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. Pay attention to the tension that deserves your attention in your heart. Let me say that one more time. Pay attention to the tension that deserves your attention. You know something's going on in your heart. It doesn't quite settle right. Something bothers you. You're not quite sure what's going on. It's hard to pinpoint, but that kind of makes you pause a little bit. And some, some of you, it keeps you up at night, and you're like, God, what's going on? There's some tension in me. I, I don't know what is going on. Oftentimes, it makes you too hesitant, and you're like, man, I, I'm not really sure, but something is happening. Pay attention to the tension in your heart. And when you realize what is going on, church, bring it to light. What is God doing here? Verse 4 and verse 9. Jonah, is that right for you to be angry? What is God doing? Doesn't God know? Of course God knows. But when God asks question to Jonah, God wants Jonah to deal with it. But Jonah is like, you're wrong, God. I am right. Let me build a shelter here. Send the destruction to them, God. Jonah is completely oblivious, the heart of God, just imposing his will. Pay attention to the tension that deserves your attention and bring it to light. Because if you do not bring it to light, there's something that bothers you, something that's inside of you. You're not quite sure, but you're like, keep shoving it off. I don't want to deal with it. Deal with it. That turns into worry and that turns into bitterness. And you don't want that. Tim Keller once said, worry is not believing that God will get it right. Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Let me say that one more time. Worry is not believing that God will get it right. And bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Here, Jonah is incredibly bitter. God, you got it wrong. Chapter 4, verse 1. This seemed very wrong to Jonah. God, you're wrong. I'm right. I am livid, angry. His heart, he does not deal with the tension that was dwelt within him. And it turns into incredible bitterness. Church, when God disagrees to you, when God seems to be wrong in your eyes, rather than blaming him being wrong, check your heart. Pay attention to the very tension within you. If you have the God who always agree with you, you don't have the God of the Bible. You have the God of your own imagination. If you have the God who always agrees with you, then you don't have the God of the Bible. 
you have the God of your own flesh. God is, of course, greater than us and knows better. Therefore, he will disagree us and convict us, confront us. But when God always agreed with you, in the end, you are your own God. You are the judge. So if God constantly agrees with you, that's not the God of the Bible. He transcends all culture and all of our mind, revealing us what we are convicted of. So pay attention to the tension in your heart. Bring it to light. Because if you don't bring it to light, it becomes bitter, it becomes cancerous. What is cancer? Cancer in your body survives at the expense. All these bad cells eat up all the best cells, good cells in your body. That's how it spread, cancer spread. Bitterness is just like that. It will eat you up the best part of you. You become incredibly bitter, incredibly cynic. You just rebel in the presence of God, and it stinks. It wreaks havoc in your life, and people around you seize you. Therefore, pay attention to the attention, bring it to light, and lastly, surrender your will to God. Here, what does Jonah do? Is he surrendering his will to God? No. He's being very passive-aggressive at best. God, I'm still here. I'm still waiting to see what would happen in this city. He's still imposing his will to God rather than, God, your will, your heart is to forgiveness. Rather than saying that Jonah is constantly imposing his own will to God, asking God to send them destruction, just waiting out there in the city. Before we move on, let me give you some positive example in the scripture. Who did this well? Who realized there's tension that deserved the attention, who brought it to light, and then who really surrendered his will to God. King David was anointed to be a king in his very early age. In time he grew up, he decided to join an armed force. So he joined an army of Saul, and he was very gifted at what he does. So his popularity just grew. He got so much affirmation. They were like, oh, David, you are great. And then at the time, there was an insecure king named Saul. He was very insecure, and he was very jealous of David's popularity. So what does Saul decide to do? Kill him. Get rid of him. He's going to take up all my kingdom. This is my kingdom, David, not yours. Did David do anything wrong? Not at all. He was just simply faithful to the calling that God has given him. David now has to run away for his life because Saul's witch hunt has begun. David and his army run away to this desert in Gedi. There are a thousand caves out there. He and his army decided to hide in one of the caves. Saul hears about it, brings his army, pursues David to the desert in Gedi. While they were in desert, Saul had to go to the bathroom. And one cave that he picked out of a thousand happened to be the very caves that David and his armies were there. David and his army are seeing Saul coming in. And David, his army are saying, David, now is your chance. Kill him. Be done. In the end, you're supposed to be the king anyway. In the end, you didn't do anything wrong. In the end, this killing is completely justified. The man told, the army told David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David approaches Saul while he's going to the bathroom in the cave. But in the end, what does David do? He does not kill Saul. In the end, just cuts off the clothing, robe, and come back to his army. His army is like, what are you doing? You could have ended it. This is what David say. 
The Lord forbid that I should touch such thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. After Saul is done, David tells Saul, Saul, here's your clothing. I could have killed you, but I didn't. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. What just happened there? See, all the men were like, this is your chance. So David goes up. But he realized there's some tension in his heart that deserved his attention. He does not kill him. He just takes off the cloak. And then he deals with it. He brings it to light. He tells his men, don't do it. He's the Lord's anointed. Tell Saul, hey, I could have killed you, but I'm not going to take that on my own hand. See, I'm not going to impose my own will to you. But may the Lord's will be done. May the Lord avenge you. He dealt with the tension in his heart. He brought it to light. And then he's, rather than imposing his own will, he surrenders his own will to God. Completely opposite as Jonah here. All the way from chapter 1 to chapter 4, Jonah's like, God killed him. That's what I want. How is your heart today, church? What are you desperately fighting against him today? Because it's going to wreak havoc. When you continually impose your own will to God rather than understanding will of God, before you know it, when you look at mirror, you have become a Frankenstein. You have become a monster filled with bitterness. Let's keep going. What happens as a result of Jonah? Keep going like this. Look for a six with me. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. A couple things we learn about this verse. We have no idea what this plant is, by the way. This is a unique word in the Old Testament, never used elsewhere. But it must have been a very nice plant. Because this is the first time we see Jonah this happy. Was Jonah just happy? No. Jonah was very happy, exceedingly happy. This was the greatest thing in his life. And then plant dies. What happened? Jonah gets really mad. Look verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. So God has to plead with Jonah in verse 10 and 11. Jonah, you didn't do anything to this plant. You didn't grow it. It grew overnight, died overnight. Then shouldn't I care about those 120,000 men and women who do not know their right and left? Children, think with me. Any logical people sitting here will say, human life is much more important than plant life, right? Not only that 120,000 of them, but Jonah's obsession to the plant leads him to complete dysfunction. He does not see that. He's obsessed about plant. He was just not thankful before God. God, thank you for the plant. God, I'm disappointed the plant died. No. God, I am so happy about the plant. This is my everything. When it dies, God, kill me. I'd rather die. Become suicidal. He puts entire weight of his heart in this plant while God's heart bleed over the people. In other words, obsession will lead to great dysfunction. It's easy for us to say, Jonah, what are you thinking, man? That's just, how can you think that? But what is your obsession that you are desperately holding on? You think it makes sense, right? But people around you see that, what are you doing, Jen? That's so little. 
Obsession, in the end, obsession is an exercise in futility. It will never deliver what it seems to promise to you. When it gives to you, you are only excited that you want more of it. Man, if only I have more of a plant. You only hunger for more. It's never quenchable thirst. And then when it takes away, you become suicidal. I'd rather die, kill me. Completely illogical, complete dysfunction. I actually titled today's sermon as The Lovely Things That Kept Me Away From You. The Lovely Things That Kept Me Away From You. Actually, this is a direct quotation from, I would consider, the, one of the most brilliant theologians who have ever lived. First century African theologian, St. Augustine. This quote, The Lovely Things That Kept Me Away From You, is found in Book 10 of his Confession. And I should have titled the book 10 as St. Augustine's Pursuit of Happiness. He tries to find happiness in life. And all that tries to find happiness in all the lovely things that God has created. To Jonah, it was the plant, right? What is that, the comfort? So Augustine tries to find all the comfort, all the happiness in the beauties of the world. And then he realized that it all leads to futility in the end. There's no rest in his soul. And realize that he's been obsessed over creation, over creator. And realize that only rest of my heart, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Whatever you obsess over in this temporal earth is just your exercise in futility. It will never give you what it desires. So, what is the lovely things that keeps you away from God today, church? For some of you, it may be the promotion that you're desperately looking for. For some of you, all the lovely things in this earth, perhaps money, perhaps power, perhaps only if I can fit inside its three jeans, just like my sister-in-law does. I don't know, beauty perhaps, romance, the reason why I said I just wanted to hide in the corner preparing sermon because I examined my own heart, what that would be, the lovely things that kept me away from God. To Jonah was a plant. To Jonah it was that his own will, I am right. He has to be right. For me, it was, yes, you can give me a whole world, but one that I really want the most is simple peace and joy. And you're saying, how can that be the one that keeps you away from God, Jen? Those are fruit of the Spirit. Absolutely, that's a great thing. But when I obsess over joy, I must be happy to live in my life. I can never have that. Those Bibles say, seek all these things first and God shall be added to you. Seek ye first, seek God first, and all these things shall be added unto you. Happiness is always a byproduct. It's not the end goal. We studied Beatitude as a church before I got here. The blessed is one who mourns. Blessed is one who hunger after righteousness. Those blessed can be translated happy is. Flourishing, true flourishing is. Does Bible say blessed is the one who is blessed? Happy is the man who is happy? No. Blessed is the one who seek after righteousness. Blessed is the one who mourns. In other words, happiness is never an end goal. It's just a byproduct of pursuing something greater. Peace that I desperately want to sleep well at night. If you can give me peace and joy, you can have the whole world. That's all I want. But when I obsess over peace of God, when I just obsess over fruit of the Spirit, over God, peace turns into pieces. 
It leads me to fragmentation, leads me to great division. This is what St. Augustine says that God is the one who gathers us from our fragmentation. Listen to what he says. You gathered me together from the state of disintegration in which I had been fruitlessly divided. I turned from unity in you to be lost in multiplicity. What do you obsess over today that you are just desperately holding on? What is that planned for you? Seek Jesus, God first, and all these things shall be added unto you. If you seek all these things first and nothing, you lose that and you lose God at the same time. So take care of what you love. St. Augustine, in his exposition of Psalm, says this, Love as much as you like, but take care of what you love. Love of God and love of your neighbor are called charity. But the love of this world called greed, the lust, lust must be reigned. Charity spurred on. So today, how is your heart today, church? If you're living very rebellious life, God has been convicting you. You might not know what you're desperately fighting against God today, this morning. And check the very tension within your heart that deserves your attention. And bring it to light. Deal with it in the presence of Almighty. And surrender your will to God. That's what marks Christian life today. Do you know who did that best? His name is Jesus. There was tension in his heart. He had to deal with it. What does he do? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he brings it to light. Father, even to me this is too much. Let this cup pass away from me. I can't do it. But did Jesus impose his own will to the Father? No. He says, but not my will, but your will be done. And yet, Jesus is not only your example. He is your Savior. To Jesus, there was no lovely things that kept him away from God. The only thing that kept Jesus away from God was his love for us. To make us lovely, he went to the cross. Not that we were lovely, but to make us lovely. He went to the cross and died for us. Church, if I end the sermon by saying, oh yeah, deal with the tension in your heart, bring it to light, surrender your will, work hard, and then I just did a great job of guilt tripping you. In the end, the only solution of your obsession, the only solution of your hunger can only be quenched by you constantly gazing your eyes on the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He loved you to death. And then Jesus said, I died for you and I am coming back. When you focus so much on the around the world, news, whatever is happening on the Twitter, Facebook, of course your heart should be consumed by that plant, what is around you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I had to do that. Think of what is praiseworthy, what is noble. That's the way of my heart for peace and joy that I'm desperately longing today. So church, the Jesus who died for you promised that he will come back. Will you turn your eyes upon Jesus? In the end, we are a sojourner from this world to another world. Let me end with Augustine's quote once again in his homilies on the gospel of John. He says, love God. 
Make use of the world, but do not be taken in by the world. You entered the world. You are making a journey. You came intending to leave, not to stay. You are a wayfarer. This life is a wayside inn, I-N-N. Use money, and I shall add all the created things, all the things that you obsess about, whatever that is. Use money in a way a traveler at a wayside inn uses the table, the cups, the pitcher, the bed, intending to leave, not to stay. Trials abound, but God does not fail who rests his hope in him. And in him, there is no failing. Do you know Jesus and what he has done for you? He is the Lord, and as you turn your eyes upon him, you will slowly find your true rest that only Jesus can provide. Let's pray. Oh God, we see your heart bleeding over your creation, your people, the 120,000 men and women who did not know right and left. But, oh, Lord, I see Jonah in me. I am obsessing over my plant, completely forgetting your heart for the nation, your heart for the people. I'm constantly seeking my own kingdom, my own peace, my own joy. Oh, God, will you confront us? What is the plan for us? What is the very lovely things that keeps us away from you? Will you confront us? And, oh, Lord, as you confront us, help us to take 20 look at Jesus Christ because we only take a look at ourselves within us. All we find is guilt and wicked heart. There's no hope in that. So, Jesus, would you allow us to declare that you are the Lord, you are sovereign in our lives, that you love us, and may our love truly be reordered, that we'll love you ultimately, and loving you first, seeking all other things secondarily. So, O oh God, confront us, convict us, and yet reorient us to the very rest that you have promised at the cross. So, Jesus, we thank you, and we love you, and we thank you that you have loved us first. In your precious name we pray. Amen.